Welcome to You Wanted a Hit, a podcast in which we discuss unlikely, perplexing, and positively bizarre songs that swept the nation and often the world. Hit songs that, looking back, make us think, how did this get played on the radio? Do people actually like this? Do we like this? Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your co-host, Michael Smith, and I'll be discussing one song per episode with my co-host and fellow music fanatic, pop culture enthusiast Theo Beidler. Each episode, we'll take turns exploring a song, while the other host has no idea what song will be the focus until we hit play. Yeah, before we do anything, I waited till we started recording before I uh, opened up. Uh. I was going to do an ad read prior to you joining because I was thirsty for this beer and I was thinking about what I would say on an ad read. And I was genuinely thinking that Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is like the perfect after ski beer. You know, come off the slope. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I, I really I love a good IPA after the slopes. Yeah, I, could, I like those after like physical activity. Yeah, going this weekend, I'm going to gonna bring a couple and crack them up lovely let's get that content Mm -hmm. let's Mm -hmm. get it well speaking of getting it should we get into our song tonight yes let's i i have a fun one i was thinking i don't know if you're gonna love i could see you loving this song or hating this song and i really don't know which way you're gonna go what does that say about me well i don't know You'll, you'll maybe see why i'm unpredictable this song you are this song was an absolutely massive hit and i think for good reason okay musically and if it wasn't for just one word in the chorus, the main word of the song, I don't think it would be on this podcast. It wouldn't be weird or it would, wouldn't be a hit? No, it wouldn't be weird. It's a hit. Okay. But you'll see. Ready? Okay. But would it be a hit if the word was different? I don't know. You can answer that. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Got to let it pick up a little bit. The Knack. There it is. Hey, that was a different word, a different name. I don't know that we would be talking about it today, but here we are. So you knew the band name, Knack. The Knack, yeah, my Sharona. Uh, I like this song. Okay. Are you a fan of the yeah. band overall? Did you know any other stuff by them? I'm sure I do. I know that they're like a beloved power pop band. I'm sure I would like what they do. Yeah. I think you would. I don't know if you thought this song might be a little novelty. I mean, you, we'll get into some of the it is a little not bit, controversy, but... but some of the like kind of blowback, if you will. And I could see you kind of falling that way okay. because it came out of like the, a bit of the punk scene. It is kind of punky in some ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so let's get into it. Uh, Doug right. Figer is the the front man for this band, lead singer, writer. He grew up in Oak Park, Michigan, outside of Detroit, in the famous uh, infamous Nine Mile area. His mother was mm-hmm. a teacher, and his dad was a civil rights lawyer, which takes me to my first aside, because law is in the family. Wait, is Nine Mile and Eight Mile the same thing? Uh, that's a great question, and you're terribly right. I was thinking Eight Mile in my head, but I read Nine Mile. I think they are, like, I think it is separated into miles. Uh, so he is in the Nine Mile area, if okay. I read this correctly, which would not be infamous. Okay. Eight Mile is infamous. You're right. They've made a movie out of it. Uh <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's the extended cut Look, he was born outside of detroit right we're not really going to come back to detroit so don't worry yeah. about that uh law of the family <laughs> doug's brother jeffrey feiger would go on to become a well-known lawyer who is best known for representing uh, jack kevorkian during his assisted suicide Whoa. cases yeah 
Yeah. Uh, he also okay. unsuccessfully ran for governor of Michigan in 1998. And in 2007, he was indicted for allegedly illegally funneling $127,000 to John Edwards' failed presidential campaign. Uh, a jury would acquit him. What? On all 10 charges. So it was a false lead. Uh, but I bring this up, one, because he's Doug's brother, but also he was represented by another famous lawyer, Gary Spence, who I didn't recognize uh, as I'm not a lawyer fanboy. But I looked into Gary, and he's a member of the Trial Lawyer Hall of Fame, which I did not know was a thing. Uh, and he's also never lost. It sounds like an exciting museum. Definitely. He's never lost a criminal case. Uh, before jury, uh, either as a prosecutor or a defense attorney, and hasn't lost a civil case since 1969. That's a good lawyer. Wow, yeah. that's a that's a no hitter. Yeah, can you imagine uh, being indicted for money laundering to a politician, and the one you picked was John Edwards? <laughs> uh, like, who is so passionate about John Edwards? presidential campaign i know that they were like i gotta do something illegal to help this guy win this is really why i had to mention it maybe he had <laughs> maybe he had some dirt on him uh, potentially yeah. yeah let's get back to the neck uh doug was in a band before the neck that he was in right out of high school called sky which had moderate success and i read in one bio that labeled them as a country rock band what do you mean by moderate success well they were signed to rca they recorded two albums. Uh, both albums were recorded with Rolling Stones producer Jimmy Miller. And I think it was a thing in L.A., um, but they never really had any real chart success, which is really, I mean, back in early, mid-1970s here, so would have been, you know, with no real radio success, like you're not really going to go far outside of your area. So I think that's yeah. kind of the vibe I got where they're signed, they did two records, didn't go anywhere. So this was, uh, they broke up in 1973. How's that treat in your mouth, babe? That sounds like a Doug Foggart song. It's a little country, uh, like Southern Rocky. We're getting some, like, uh, Big Star vibes. Definitely. It's kind of a jam, yeah. uh, dis- despite the uh, very suggestive lyrics. Well, he's known for that, so we'll get, we'll get more of that here. So yeah, so Doug was in the band Sky. Uh, this helped him move out to L.A. All these guys are Midwestern guys, but... He moved out to L.A., and he ended up staying in L.A., where the rest of the members moved back to the Midwest. And Doug would meet Burton Aver, who would later become his writing partner, and he would play guitars, keys, and sing background vocals for The Neck. They would be joined by Bruce Gary on drums and Prescott Niles on bass, uh, who apparently joined the band. Great name. Prescott Niles. He joined the band just days Great before name. their first show, apparently. Uh, I could not figure out where they got the name The Knack from, but I did read that they were at one point or maybe thought about being called 2020, which is an interesting name. The Knack is cooler. The Knack's definitely cooler than 2020, yeah. yeah. Um, the website Ultimate Classic Rock spoke of the LA scene at the time saying, the Los Angeles music scene of the late 70s was overflowing with energy, attitude, and great bands. Things were moving fast, and by 1978, the landscape of punk outfits like Germs, The Bags, The Weirdos was starting to give Love way the to the likes of the Pilm Souls, The Beat, and The Knack. So they gained quite the following playing gigs in L.A. They would mainly play shows in very 1960s-era vibes, skinny black ties, white shirts, tight black pants. But very, very mod. Very mod. 
apparently they would jam with the likes of Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, Stephen Stills, and Ray Manzarek at the Troubadour on a regular basis. Hmm. I can hear the Tom the Tom Petty connection a little bit. Yeah. Apparently they they were close to Springsteen, and I read and I absolutely cannot confirm this by any means, but there's definitely a connection with them and the song uh, Bruce Springsteen song "Don't Look Back." There's a potential that Bruce had written the song for the neck. It was written in the late oh. 70s. Bruce played Don't Look Back often in the late 70s, and it's on many live bootlegs, but he wouldn't release huh. it until 1998. And the Knack played it all the time. They covered it a lot during their shows, uh, and they would release it on their retrospect, and then again on another tribute to Springsteen album. Um, so I just throw that in there because there's definitely a Springsteen connection at the start of their career. And, and so there's there's speculation that it's that he had intended it for his friends, potentially. Yeah. Okay. All right. I like it. Yeah. With the success, they started a uh, with the su- success that they had at the Troubadour and, and kind of in the whole LA scene. They started a, a bit of a bidding war among the labels. I read one article that said as many as 10, actually, I read another article that said as many as 13 labels were actively courting them at one time. That's a lot of free steak. Yeah. One article said it a quote from a, or some, from, quote, a talent scout. Uh, it got to, uh, it got so their dressing room looked like a music business convention. There'd be six or seven different labels backstage at nearly every gig. The band drummed up attention by giving out free tickets so that every show would be packed. Another, quote, label scout, or perhaps, potentially the same label scout said their audiences were crazy you couldn't help but be influenced by all their enthusiasm it's funny though i'd see the same faces at every show <laughs> that, good tactic i mean awesome we were all yeah. we were on high school bands we could barely get our friends out to every show so. that's true i'd even tell them it's free yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly so the knack had something yep uh when they played a prominent hollywood club that weekend this is from a different article Five different record presidents came to see them, including such industry heavies as Clive Davis, Mo Osteen, and Al Corey. So they had everyone coming out. Yes. Eventually, they would sign with Capitol Records. Bruce Rabid, the man who signed them, said, I was sold the first time I saw them. And they were given the largest signing sum in the label's history at the time. Whoa. It was, according to a Washington Post article at the time, $500,000 guarantee for two albums with options for up to seven records over a five-year period. That is a massive deal Yeah, at that time. But, I mean, they were being courted by... Even now, every label that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. So their debut album is called Get the Neck, and it features the hit single, My Sharona. Yep. I can picture the album cover. We'll get to the album cover here in a bit. Let's talk about the lyrics. Okay. Um, I-, I don't know that I ever really sat down and consider what the song was truly about, or ever really listened to the song outside of My Sharona. Um, are you familiar with the like, the Meeting Gun no. song? Oh, no, I'm not. I I think I just kind of jam out whenever it's on, and that's yeah. what I pay attention to, is the, the music. Well, I think most it's, people do. It's a groovy song. Um, yeah, growing up, I don't know that I even really put like My Sharona together as someone's name. I guess I kind of thought it was like a, a metaphor or at most a like right. nickname or something. Like old slang or something. Yeah. <laughs> something that they like I, borrowed that means, or uh, they're a band from New York and it's like a word they've heard around New York or something like right. that. Yeah. And that's the thing. I I chose the song because it's a hit. 
and it's a weird song. But then reading about mm-hmm. it, you're like, oh, so Sharona, the girl's name. Yeah, it's just pretty much a love uh-huh. song. I will say in Japan, I read somewhere that they, they thought Sharona was referring to Doug's penis. Uh, but no, it's a... Okay. A, I could, this a is a band that sounds like they'd be huge in Japan. Like, yeah, that's, yeah. this is just the way they look, the way they sound. I can totally see them kicking ass in Japan. Definitely. So Sharona is Sharona Alpern, Alperine. Uh, and here's where things get like a little creepy in the story. Okay. Uh, given some of the lyrics to the song. So at the Is time... turned to a true crime podcast? Yeah, not so much, but uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe in some uh, states. But Sharona, oh, no. Sharona would have been 16 uh, or 17 years old when she first met uh, Doug. And Doug would have been about 25 or 26 at the time. Ooh. That's, a, randomly, that's a big gap. It's a bit of a gap, especially, you know, given the ages. Yeah. They randomly met at a clothing store in LA where Sharona was working. Mm. There's a NPR interview uh, that Sharona had in 2010 where she okay. said he was nine years older than me. And within a month or two later, he told me that I'm in love with you. You're my soulmate. You're my other half. We're going to be together one day. She continued, I was madly in love with my boyfriend at the time. And so it took a year for me to leave my boyfriend. Wow. The long con. The long con. They would go on a date. I cite here extra chill that said that they dated for four years. And this article said they were briefly engaged, but were never married. I can't fully confirm that part, but they apparently did date for for many years. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the time when they met, Doug recounted, it was like getting hit in the head with a baseball bat. I fell in love with her instantly, and when that happened, it sparked something, and I started writing a lot of songs feverishly in a short amount of time. So while Doug wrote the lyrics, he and Aver wrote the music. Okay. Doug said in a different er- interview, uh, Burton, that's a great name, by the way, I never, like Bert, Burton, Burton, Burton had <laughs> this basic guitar and drum riff lying around for a long time, even before the knack got together. He played it for me, and I really liked it. I said we, we would do it sometime, but I didn't know how we could use it at that time. Then, at the same time the knack was getting started, I met a little girl named Sharona, whom I fell in love with. When I was thinking little about girl Sharona, is right. I know. When I was thinking about Sharona, Burton's riff came to mind. So Burton and I got together and worked out a structure and a melody in the words. The result was my Sharona. The song apparently took only 15 minutes to write, which... I feel like a lot of people say they do, you know, I mean, it might be like a, it's like the, yeah, it took us that time. Maybe that that's how the idea came together. We did some refining after that. I'm sure. Yeah. But I think we, we talked about a lot of songs where it was like stroke of genius, you know, 15 minutes, but they said they wrote in 15 minutes. It also apparently uh, was recorded in one take and it was mixed within 15 minutes. Did they have somewhere to be? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> It's funny because they had all this money from the from the label. Well, so I didn't. You could take as much time as you want. Well, here's the thing: I didn't write down any of this stuff, but I read multiple articles about the recording process and, and from the producer. So this is like well established that they love recording quickly and cheaply. This album cost eleven thousand dollars to record, and the follow up album cost ten thousand <laughs> because it was a competition to see if they could do it cheaper. So. While they have a I mean, massive advance. They can keep more of the money <laughs> if they do that. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> Less to recoup. Doug recounted, I believe that our recordings are timeless. They don't have any sh- schmutz that makes them sound dated. 
Get the Knack could have certainly been recorded last year. We recorded the article from a more recent article talking about you know, why the time was so. It could have been recorded last year. Mm. We recorded My Sharona and Good Girls Don't in one day, in one take, with a live lead vocal. We went from beginning to the end of the song, and that was it. Alvair and I put in the background vocals, and it was mixed in about 15 minutes total. The whole album took 11 days to record and two days to mix. Wow. All right. So he references Good Girls Don't, which is the follow-up yeah, single I think I know to, that song, to this song. Right? Moderate. Actually, it did. I think it charted up to like 11 or something. So did moderately well. Mm-hmm. One critic from Trouser Press said that the main riff was an inversion of the signature riff of Give Me Some Lovin' from the Spencer Davis group. Oh, of course. Yeah. It's funny, there's a handful of songs we'll reference here that I hear and I'm like, oh, yeah. But like, I would never have connected this with. Uh, it totally, that, I can absolutely it hear it. Drummer Bruce Gary admitted that he didn't like the song at first. Wait, drummer of the Knack? Yeah, the drummer, sorry. Spencer Davis group? No, so that was just okay. like a comment on the riff, the guitar riff there. Okay. Um, That's, that song was written by Steve Winwood. No shit. Because Steve Winwood was in Spencer Davis group. Yeah. I don't yeah. think I knew that. Mm-hmm. For the drum part, Bruce Gary admitted that he didn't like the song at first, but he came up with the stuttering beat for the song, similar to a surf stomp, with just a tom-tom and a snare. And he also incorporated a flam where two drum strokes are staggered, creating a fuller sound, which Gary considered to be crucial to the song's success. Yeah, I, also, I can hear it. I also read that Figer at one point acknowledged, and that's why I bring this up, that the drum beat was a ripoff of Smokey Robinson's Going to a Go-Go. Say that one. <laughs> and it, I mean... I think this is a time was a little different, though. People were kind of riff off each other and steal songs and it's a little more free i think it's also like right here i i'm hearing this now this was the knack beat was inspired by this beat not a complete rip yeah it's not like they sampled yeah. it i can hear that like they're going for the same but groove you, yeah, i think back then it was like yeah much more yeah leeway. i think that's what made a lot of songs really special yeah is that they piece together all these things they really love into something new. There was more like reverence of, of sorts, yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Like literally, yeah. you would see someone play a song the night before at the club and be like, "Love that." I'm gonna take a little bit of that. And maybe there's still some of that, but it, yeah, I don't know. I for sure. I mean, no music is 100 percent original. Like you're influenced True. by something, unless you made up some music growing up in a cave. The best part of waking up is dark matter coffee in your cup. That's that's their jingle, right? That's how it goes? I'm pretty sure that's how it goes. Well, either way, the best part of waking up for me is having dark matter coffee in my cup, and it could be the best part of your morning routine. But first, you have to go to darkmattercoffee.com, buy yourself a couple bags, and make sure to use the promo code WANTEDAHITCAST to get free shipping. Again, hit darkmattercoffee.com, use the promo code WANTEDAHITCAST, and you'll get free shipping on these delicious beans coming right at you. But back to the lyrics of the song, if you will. Uh, Aver was originally against using Sharona's name directly in the song, but Doug was adamant. Because their love was illegal and forbidden? (laughs) Potentially. I mean, I don't know why. But imagine if the song didn't say my Sharona. Like, I don't. Yeah, I, I mean, what you're if, right. What if it was like My Love? I don't know if it would have been a hit. It, it's a big song musically. It's so catchy, but without that, 
I don't know. The title is so memorable that, I mean, even though I never knew what it was about, it's like, that's just, that's, that's it. Even a more like common name, I feel like. Yeah, what if it was My Ramona? I don't know if it would have (laughs) landed. I think that probably would have (laughs) worked. I don't know. I think Shrona, I never thought of the name, I don't think. Growing up, like hearing the song all the time. My Deborah. (laughs) (laughs) So Sharona recounts when she first heard the song. One day on my lunch break from the clothing store, I went to their rehearsal and I saw maybe Burton or Doug say, should we play it? Should we play it? All right, let's play it for her. And I sat down. Q2, I'm driving back to the clothing store and I'm thinking, did I just hear a song with my name in it? Wait, that was the first time she had heard it? Yeah, well, in a rehearsal, yeah. Because they were friends. And... he was recording right, her. That's right. Time. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. Uh, let me send you the singles artwork. I forgot. She's still with her boyfriend. Yeah. All it takes is a is a hit song. Yeah. For to make someone leave this person they're madly in love so, with. Listen up, all you young Romeos out there. So I sent you the singles artwork. That is Sharona. I see the single artwork. That's, that's her? her. Oh, so she agreed to be on the single. She art. agreed to be the single art, and I love this because it's her wearing. Blue jeans and a white tank top uh, that uh, is a bit suggestive, if you will. And she's carrying a, a vinyl record, and it is the next album cover for their actual it's album. A, yeah, which I kind of love. Right. Very meta. How old was she when this photo was taken? Uh, I mean, she would have been 17, probably, most likely. I read 16 and 17, so there must have been like a birthday there uh, shortly after. So I think she might have been 17. <laughs> she looks a lot older than 17 in this picture. I'm touching my face. Yeah. Uh, it won't surprise you that she became a heartthrob for any young men who had purchased this album. She also became mm-hmm. a style icon for many women who apparently would love this outfit. It's just, it's, love blue jeans and a white tank top? Yeah, again, maybe for the time it was interesting. I don't know. Okay. So in that same right. NPR interview, she said, that was like my normal outfit, what I wore all the time. She says, laughing, I guess I didn't look at myself as a celebrity, but people were very excited when they met me. And I remember going on tour and seeing sometimes people dress up and I'd say, what are you dressed up as? And they would say, Sharona's. So it's kind of fun. Right. Yeah. I've never actually like really listened to the lyrics. And now that I am, knowing that it's about a 25, 26 year old lovingly singing to a I pick you up at middle school. (laughs) Middle school. (laughs) Well, all right. So the first verse is, oh, my little pretty one, my pretty one, when are you going to give me some time, Sharona? Oh, you make my motor run, my motor run, got it coming off the line, Sharona, which is very innocuous for now. Mm-hmm. But then the next line and the chorus is... Am I going to be touching my face again? Yeah, oh yeah. Never going to stop. <laughs> Give it up. Such a dirty mind. I always get it up for the touch of the younger kind. Oh, no. I mean... No. Now that I hear that, I can never un- not Ugh. hear it in the song. Uh, no, me neither. <laughs> I want to go back to just thinking it was a groovy song. Well, uh, I will say, of all... Their other music is very suggestive. I think they like were very much doing it for the crack. Like they're a, they're a sleazy band. Yeah, and I think they were really wanting to push the envelope. So, right. yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. So there's no like big controversy here with the song or the band. Yeah, outside of the questionable lyrics about young women mm-hmm. uh but the the band was dragged for seemingly being a beatles ripoff and 
I thought that this was like an unfortunate coincidence and, and just like kind of like they were doing it a little bit. Like I mentioned that when they were playing live shows, they dressed up in very like British invasion era clothes, yeah. you know, yeah. skinny ties. But apparently this mm-hmm. was like kind of their idea and a bit of a like label PR stunt. Um, so along with their, their dress, uh, people compared the album title, Get the Knack to the Beatles meet the Beatles, which I guess in outside the US okay. was called with the Beatles. So it's a little yeah, more similar. Uh, yep. Both album covers are black and white photos of the four band mm-hmm. members. Mm-hmm. I think it's a bit of a stretch. Um, you mentioned, you know, the album cover for the knack. It's not yep. a direct ripoff of meet the Beatles, but I could see it being like inspired by so it's, They're not that similar. They're not that they're not that similar. But the no. the photo that they used for the back of the album is a total Beatles ripoff. <laughs> so I just sent that to you. Oh, I see it. Yeah, I already see it. Yeah, and then big time. <laughs> I also read that. So there's the center of the vinyl has this kind of like a rainbow scroll to it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which the, a lot of records have that. Well, that's the thing. So, again... Isn't that a capital thing? It is. It's a capital thing from the 60s and 70s. Also, capital was the Beatles label. Right. But people compared it to, like, they were really trying to rip from... I guess they were, like, maybe... As I saw a couple other versions that maybe it was changing at the time, so... I don't know. A bit of a... St- uh, did, a bit of a stretch, maybe. But did they, they react how Oasis did when people said that they ripped off the Beatles? Or they are just like, we're bigger than the Beatles? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think, again, I think it was, like, a bit done on purpose, and I read some, like, some yeah. reviews at the time that called them, like, you know, the Beatles of, of their generation. Um, I mean, I can hear the influence there, for sure, but... To me, they sound not, more like the Who it's not overt. than the Beatles. I could see that. I just think yeah, they could enjoyed, that. like, that they wanted to kind of, like, dress that up. And I, I could see, like, mm-hmm. you know, if you, he would have been teenage years... Maybe even a little younger when the Beatles were like really coming over British Invasion. I could see you being like, mm-hmm. "Fuck yeah, like, that's rock and roll. I want to emulate that." Yeah, for sure. And then when yeah. uh, when there's like a lull and it's punk bands and it's disco, you're like, "Well, I want that back." Yeah. I wanna... It would be no different than like me being like, well, "Let's let's dress up grunge and do a grunge band." I don't know. Like it yeah. wouldn't be that weird. I mean, they do they do have some of that punk grit, uh, but I think a lot of those bands from like the Basically, the guitar bands of like the '80s that weren't doing more new wave, I feel like we're pulling in some of the Beatles and and the Who and and things like that. Like Cheap Trick, I think is a is a good comparison for the Knack. Yeah, the Cars. But a lot of people call the Knack one of the first bands to start the new wave trend. Yeah, I guess. I guess they, it's I new guess wave. they kind of cradled both. Yeah, I guess I meant by new wave like the synthesized stuff. The full, yeah. 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 Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, I get it. It's like it's punk without the edge, to be quite honest. Yeah, which I get. That's they were dragged a little bit yeah. too. Uh, and in another PR stunt, and this is a big reason why they were dragged. Uh, this time it was the manager's fault, apparently. Uh, when the band was rising in fame, uh, they famously didn't give interviews. So according to that same On Washington Post article, album? I found. Oh my yeah, god. Yeah, so according to the same Washington Post article that I found, quote, they refused all interviews, even a cover story offered from Rolling Stone. Their press kit is pure pop mythology. Instead of biographical data, it reveals the group's astrological signs, 
preferences and girls and favorite oh, colors. Oh, dear God. Yeah, like you said, it was the debut album. But I read that the did the Beatles do this as well? I didn't know if this is a true connection to the Beatles or not. I think this is just a bad idea. <laughs> uh, the the band would later blame this stunt uh, as a main reason that there was so much backlash against them. I'm thinking of some other reasons why there might have been some backlash against them. <laughs> well, yeah, but no one, I don't, actually, I don't think people might be able yeah. to about that. Uh, the 80s. The, the Niles said years later, the manager at the time, I'll excuse him for his innocence, his non-expertise, and his being in way over his head. However, this decision killed us, and as a result, it pissed a lot of people off. Okay. So, yeah. Who, do we know who their manager was? Uh, I feel like I did read the name somewhere. It wasn't anyone. Notable. Like, well, notable. this might have been the last act that they managed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would say so. Oh, man. But yeah, there, there was a bit of a backlash. I think a lot of it because, like, they came off just cocky and a douchebag. Like, you hear the music, and you're like, ah, eh, it's kind of douchey, but then you're like, you get no backstory from them. Yeah. They don't want to do interviews. Yeah. You're like, okay, fuck these guys, you right. know? So there was a lot of backlash, especially with other artists of that era at the time. And I think also for artists, it was like, these guys fucking blew up, and they were like, man, could have been us. But there was a San Francisco artist named Hugh Brown who led a campaign called Nuke the Knack, <laughs> in which he, he sold Wait, does of- Nuke have a K at the beginning? It does. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, so let me... Uh, so he sold kits that were uh, a button, T-shirts, and stickers. And I could only find a picture of the button. So let me send you this. I found this from Button Museum. This wasn't org. the Knack doing it themselves like Elvis, right? No, unfortunately. Uh, the Nuke the Knack here. This is from ButtonMuseum.org, which is a great website. Uh, the Busy Beaver Button Museum. But it's just a black button that says Nuke the Knack. I might but get the, one of these. Fuck these guys. <laughs> but, well, so the, the sticker read, Honk if you've slept with Sharona. And then the shirt oh, was boy. A, the shirt was a Jaws-inspired T-shirt. A swimmer shown being attacked by a shark wearing a Knack T-shirt. And the slogan reads, Just when you thought it was safe to listen to the radio. <laughs> wow. This guy went in. Uh, yeah. The Knack uh, originally loved it, and they bought a couple kits, and they wore it to rehearsal. Of course. Uh, and then uh, the kit sales picked up, and they stopped smiling, and they threatened to sue. <laughs> okay. Uh, he said, the artist that made the Nuke the Knack button said, they were so overhyped, I thought I'll do something that's kind of obnoxious and kind of funny. Did this backlash come from... Um... A critical perspective or was this like rock fans just well on this band like is there documentation of people writing about why they don't like this band a little bit i think and we'll get into the chart and everything they just blew up so quickly and they were so fucking massive for a hot second that i think a lot of people a lot a lot of people loved them and just like anything else a lot of people were like didn't like them whether it was like reasonable reasons they're just trying this, to be this really reminds me of that band jet like when, oh, yeah. when jet came out they were definitely like just ripping off a bunch of classic rock bands they dress just like other classic rock bands and that one song was so huge and people hated it yeah obviously That's they were comparison. very successful for a minute there 
And then when their second record came out, I think everyone just collectively said, we're going to tank this band. Well, that's exactly what happened to the next. That's yep. an incredible uh, comparison. <laughs> <laughs> Did Pitchfork review their second album with a gif of a monkey pissing in its own mouth? Because that <laughs> happened to Jet. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't think so, but perhaps Pitchfork was inspired to start because of the neck. Well, to that point, I read in one article, it was, quote, soon people were accusing the neck of being arrogant kids, while some criticized the group as misogynistic because of an abundance of lust-filled lyrics in its songs. For others, Get the Knack was seen as a watered-down conclusion of the fading punk movement from a few years earlier, a safe and sanitized version of something that had recently revitalized rock. Okay. But look, to be fair, there's a lot of positive reviews. We'll, we'll get to a couple. Yeah. Uh, there's also a lot of bands that, that turned punk music into more pop-oriented music that was great. Yeah, sure. I'm sure. So, you know. Some of these writers probably like some of those bands. <laughs> 100%. And honestly, it's funny because a lot of like reviews I read after the fact from like the 90s and the 2000s and now, it's people writing being like, they got dogged, but honestly, like go back and listen to the record. It's fucking rad. You know, yeah, it's a lot of that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, like I said, there was a lot of positive reviews, but I did, uh, mainly I pulled negative review quotes because they're more fun. Uh, we gotta nuke the neck. Yeah, I gotta nuke the neck. So we're gonna nuke the neck for a couple of quotes here. Uh, Rolling Stone described the band as unreli- unrelievedly cynical about all the junk food topics that fill their debut album. Another critic began his review by saying, "This record makes me gag." One LA writer sneered, "There's his music for Ken and Barbie dolls, not for human beings." And in another RS article, Rolling Stone article, Dave Marsh wrote. In Figer's lyrics, women are literally commodities whose chief purpose is to be brutalized. Fair enough. To be fair, Doug once described his most distinguishing feature as a smirk on a face and listed his favorite pastimes as writing nasty songs about girls that I know. Yeah. So yeah. I think he played into all of this. Uh-huh. And they, you know, they kind of enjoyed this. Uh, we'll talk about the video real quick. There's not much to talk about. Um, is she in it? She's not. No, I huh. originally I thought this video was They couldn't get her to sign the waiver that kids have to sign <laughs> to be on TV. This video I couldn't even tell if it was a real video. I, I later have confirmed that it is a real video. I don't videos weren't big back then. Oh right. This is uh seventy nine. Eighty seventy nine. Yeah. I keep saying eighties because I cause I one, I I feel like a lot of the bands that sound like this were popular in the eighties. Yeah. But also, uh, this this song, I feel like this is like a song like kicking off the 80s, yeah. the way it's out. Oh, definitely. And that's what I think people, when they say like they were kind of like the, the start of New Wave, I think that's what they're kind of getting at. He's not a good looking guy. No, he's not a looking guy. He looks like a guy that needs to be punched in the face, honestly. He looks like a creep. <laughs> uh, he looks like a creep. They're all dressed like the Beatles, and they're standing behind yeah. like a white stink wall looking like the Beatles and help. So this is, this is just a... a uh, live version of the picture on the back of the record. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you know, it's what it is. Yeah. Okay. I will say this. Um, I watched the whole video, which may have been one of the first times I've listened to the whole song straight through, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. And there's a banging guitar solo for like two minutes straight. Yeah, I guess that's true. And there is a radio edit that's like a little bit shorter, but there is a guitar solo. Uh, and I don't think I ever really appreciate that in the song. So, like, listen to the album, listen to this video. 
Yeah, that guitar tone is sweet. So I was watching the video. Yeah, and I was like, are they just riffing? They're just partying? And then I was like, I don't know. I feel like I'd never get this far. <laughs> so I bet these guys were like fun as hell to see at the trip you know? I guess I just didn't realize how long it was. I feel like I, I, I don't really listen to this song. Like, I don't put it on at home or anything. When I hear it out and about, it's, it's like, jam. I'm kind of jamming out. But then by the time the guitar solo comes on, I'm like distracted by something else. You're not paying attention. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 100%. And then it comes back in. I'm like, oh, this song's still on? I missed the whole guitar solo. <laughs> That's exactly right. This is also probably a song that many people have done at karaoke. And then like a minute and a half in, they're like, all right. Yeah. It's, it, it's still saying music playing, but there's no lyrics. You know, <laughs> you're yeah. like one of those songs. You're like, I right. didn't realize that there was a, a big break here. We can cut it. We can cut it, guys. Next, next song. <laughs> there's a comment on this video. Someone says, Doug stated he wrote My Sharona from a 14-year-old boy's perspective. That sounds like he was trying to save face. Well, all right. That is true. I did read that. Is well, it? I, okay. I read it um, like in an article that referenced that, but I didn't see the direct quote anywhere. And I didn't put it in here because while I agree that it's him trying to save face, the line is still fucking weird. So what? You're singing about an eight-year-old? I, like, it's still weird to say you like the touch of the younger yes. kind uh somebody says on here i always get it up for the touch of younger kind makes this even more troubling is what it says yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's still being go. written by a guy it's like 25 yeah so i left it out trying to save his face but here we go yeah <laughs> it came up anyway well it's also saying something that i'm not even the one doing the research and i found that yeah controversial at best uh, uh, yeah. But let's yeah, talk about sure. the charts. But sick guitar solo. Sick guitar solo. <laughs> Do you know where the song landed on the charts? <sighs> I'm really curious to hear what else is on the charts because 79's got to be a weird transitional year for music. Hot 100. I'm going to go... I'm going to go number eight as the highest it went. All right. Really? This song was fucking oh. massive. It went number one. <laughs> it went number one quick, and it stayed there for six straight weeks. Uh, the album was released June 11th, and it shot up the charts. In one article, I read that radio stations quickly zeroed in on My Sharona, uh, helping the album go gold in 13 days and platinum in seven weeks. What? By oh, my God. No wonder people were pissed off at this band. Uh, yeah. The I believe it hit the charts for the first time August twenty or June twenty third, and it was sitting atop the charts on August twenty fifth. So in the first week, uh, right. we have my friend number one, and we have at number two, "Good Times" by Chic. Oh, great song! Great song. Number three, "The Main Event" slash "The Fight" by Barbara Streisand. Number four, "After the Love Is Gone" by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Number five, Bad mm-hmm. Girls by Donna Summer, which I, that's coming down from number one. Mm-hmm. As oh, that's played. a good We're one. We're both coming down from number one. Uh, uh, d- this goes on its way yeah, out. Exactly. It's 1979. Don't Bring Me Down by ELO was number six. Number seven was okay. Devil Went Down to Georgia by Charlie Daniels Band. Whoa. Number eight, Leave Me On by Maxine Nightingale. Number nine, Mama Can't Buy You Love by Elton John. I, I didn't okay. know this song. I'm a big Elton John fan, and this one... Uh, I know it. I just didn't know it was. I didn't know. It was no, I don't think hit. it was. I think it, it stalled here. 
Uh, and then number 10, we yeah. have Sad Eyes by Robert John, which I was not familiar with. Uh, okay. Six weeks later, my Sharona is still atop the list. Let me, uh, let me see the ones that, were, that aren't on the, uh, the first list here. We've got, we have some good ones. We've got uh, Rise by Herb Alpert, which will go number oh. one. And we have talked about, when we talked about Chariots of Fire, we talked about other instrumental songs and it went number one. And that is one of them. There we go. Uh, yep. Instrumental songs like after the yeah, 60s. Yeah. So there were a bunch sure. of them back in the day. But for uh, 1979, 1980, pretty, yeah. pretty impressive. Damn. Herb is still crushing. Yeah. We've got uh, Don't Stop So You Get Enough by Michael Jackson. We've got Lonesome yep. Loser by Little River Band. Uh, we've got Sail On by Commodores. And I'll Never Love This Way Again by mm-hmm. Dionne Warwick. Probably a couple there that end up going number one. Well, do you know what song will go number one next week and beat out the knack? It is Sad Eyes by Robert John. What? <laughs> Did you listen to the song? Do you know it? Oh, fast, thank you. It's... Disco esque. It's disco. Okay. But it's like more like ballad disco. It's kind of like a Kenny Loggins type thing. Or a Bee Gees thing. Yeah, it's probably a better example. It's not good. <laughs> it's fine. I don't know. Didn't do much for me. He did the second cover of The Lion Sleeps Tonight that was ahead. Oh. That makes sense. Interesting. Wow. One of the comments on this, the top comment, the 70s is one of the greatest decades of music ever. Because of this, like, this song makes you say that. Yeah, who are you? I just, not all of it, <laughs> but a lot of white disco is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about covers and such. Oh, yeah. Let's just, uh, let's just jump right into it. We have a Weird Al song. We all know it. Well, I mean, the Weird Al Classic. song. My Bologna. Uh, well, at least the one that put him on the map. Do you think this is the one that put him on the map? I think this was his first big oh, hit. Yeah. Uh, it's a big focal point of the movie. I don't know if you've watched the movie. Yeah, me too. It's great. Sanity is just so you can experience it. Yeah. I mean, it's a classic. It's an absolute classic. Actually, I've definitely personally chosen to listen to this song more than I have my Sharona. 100%. There's a. Damn good chance that I first heard this song and know my Sharona because of this song. Yeah. We'll go through, we're just going to burn through a couple, so there's a lot here, so we'll see what we keep in the episode. Uh, cover wise, we have some notable ones. Dude, wait, sorry, sorry. Okay. I should stop looking at the comments. Do but this one is hilarious. I just want to know what people think of these things. That's oh, a good point. Someone says a legend taken too soon, and then there's just a bunch of comments that are like "R.I.P. Weird Al," and then other people who don't get the joke going like, "Bro, he's not dead. What are you talking about? Uh, he's alive, I swear." All right, sorry. Some, some notable covers we have here in a band that I love, Royal Blood. That's a great. Oh, really? This one. Yeah. Huh. Just a, it's pretty just a... straight up, but it's great. But they're with just bass and drums, right? Yeah, that's what they do. So Nirvana teased it live, uh, <laughs> apparently often. So a little tongue in cheek. Uh, I don't know because 
uh, Kurt Cobain's a huge fan. Oh, is he? Yeah, so I actually had this... Uh... <laughs> oh, this was February 94. Yes, yeah, so it appears in a lot of live... I love how they've like slowed it down. It's like a like a droney version of it. Yeah, it's kind of fun. Um, yeah. They, they would, I guess, regularly play it ahead of Drain You. Uh, Makes sense. Kirk Cobain is a huge fan. He, it huh. appears on his list of top 40 albums, or sorry, sorry, top 50 albums of all time. Huh. Um, I guess this was found in one of his journals, uh, uh-huh. and he puts one of his favorite bands. Um, in the liner notes to Incesticide, Kurt wrote, I'll be the first to admit that we're the 90s version of Cheap Trick or The Knack, but the last to admit that it hasn't been rewarding. Huh. So Interesting uh, take on his own band. <laughs> some other uh, notable ones, covers. Uh, Veruca Salt, Yola Tango. Nice. For you yeah. country fans out there, Sarah Evans. Uh, I thought you were saying Yola Tango for you country fans. No. <laughs> I was like... I have questions. For you country fans out there, there's also Sarah <laughs> Evans. The Dandy Warhols have a version. Oh, it's, this one's great. Let me send you that one. I should have a lot. This is hilarious. <laughs> So he, he like really takes the creep factor because he it's like it's almost like he's incessantly calling her and saying yeah things. it feels like a answering machine with a like stalker. nine inch nails that prodigy ever done or something yeah that's great uh, on a whole different end there's, it's in an episode of Glee mm. uh, shout out to Glee because it Glee is involved in one of the reasons why we have this podcast and we'll get there eventually I have I have uh, we spoke of the Weird Owl parodies, but there are other parodies. There's a lot, a lot of parodies. So, the Dead Kennedys performed a parody called "Pull My Strings," <laughs> which has a section where they riff on my strings. This whole song is about the fuck you to record labels, music industry, and it's oh, you don't say, yeah. So the the main line is my pain yeah. a lot. <laughs> pretty great. Oh, I have heard this. They played it at the Bay Area Music Awards. Yes. <laughs> yeah, sure. Awesome. Uh, an artist named Steve Dahl made a song called the Ayatollah, which was in response to the uh, oh. Iranian hostage crisis. So we're getting political here. Wow. It's a pretty well-written parody, actually. Like, funny political commentary. Uh... Shocked and amazed. Cheat and Chung. Uh, Cheat and Chung is great. This is more for our enjoyment now because we're just going off the rails. Bob Rivers has a parody about the Toyota recall. If you remember, there was a time when Toyota had to recall a bunch of cars because the brakes failed. So here's this version. It's, again, it's pretty good. Pretty good. It's so dumb, but it's making me laugh. It's very creative. <laughs> I gotta laugh at it. And a much worse version. This is an actual commercial. 
from. Uh, oh, I figured there's Hor- gonna be a. Hormel has a commercial about my pepperona. Oh, with like a. That doesn't work. It's not good. Some people, sometimes bad people get a little too much. There's also a ton of versions, and we're not going to listen to any of them, uh, about the coronavirus. So, my corona, there's a lot uh, of versions I out think there. I heard, yeah, I think I heard one of these. There's no kids' bop version or anything of that nature that I could find. But of course, Alvin the Chipmunks have done it. I um, knew it was coming. So, we do have that version. I have it on LP. You have the album, the, the Chipmunk I Punk? Have Chipmunk Punk, yeah. All right, uh, can we talk God. about how Chipmunk Punk opens up with a Billy Joel song? <laughs> oh, I know. It's just like rock songs. Uh, Josh Zanger gave me that for uh, uh, Secret Santa that, when we did that at Mojo. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> so I've heard theirs. I've listened to the whole thing just because I had to. It was no, it's fun. I was like, is he going to call that one a kid's corner? Cause... Yeah, it counts. It yeah. counts. Uh, they, they, did, they did all the hits back then. Yeah. Do a little legacy here before we get into the where are they now? Jail? Uh, no, no. It's the <laughs> 70s, man. It was the fastest selling single since for the label since the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand. It was what? It was one of the best selling albums of the year, selling 2 million copies. And it was the oh, number man. one song for the year 1979 for Damn. the Billboard Hot Year chart. Um, I just kind of thought this was a, um, you know, a, a song that has stood the test of time. I didn't realize how massive it was when it was a hit. Fucking huge! Wow. And the it's so weird. Yeah. Why was it so big? It's a really weird song. Well, in the in the music scene at the time, rock critic Ethan Barbaraka said the knack, or this is I guess looking back on her, uh, the knack didn't capitalize on a movement. They created a movement. The whole record industry descended on L.A. after they released Get the Knack to find other bands mm. that would be the next Knack. In 2008, Mike Sharona was ranked in two Billboard 50th anniversary charts. It ranked 75 on the Billboard Hot 100 all-time and number wow. 16 on the top Billboard Hot 100 rock songs. So you're telling me these these labels were like, wait, there's bands in our town that play rock music? Let's go check them out. That's a good point, yeah. <laughs> we're going to go all the way over to West Hollywood. Well, I mean, it's a disco scene, man. They're popping up everywhere. Yeah. Who knew? Right. Uh, very differently. I'm talking legacy here. Uh, it appeared on George W. Bush's iPod playlist. Uh, mm. So there's a CNN article from uh 2001 let me see when this was uh 2008 oh, 2005 sorry it's a cnn article from 2005 for whatever reason uh the cnn archive uh takes you to like the a 2005 version of the website so <laughs> it's pretty fun to look at uh it's it doesn't feel that long ago but it's so fucking dated Looks like a little geo i've used the wayback machine many times to research this it's stuff fun. The byline is, the music tastes of U.S. President George W. Bush have come under scrutiny after an aide revealed the playlist of his new iPod player. One quote from the article says, not every track is on message. The playlist, regarded by many as a mirror to the soul, includes musicians who campaigned against Bush 
such as John Fogarty. <laughs> also on the iPod is the 1979 song <laughs> My Sharona by The Neck about pursuing a much younger woman. One of the song lyrics, Such a Dirty Mind, Always Get It Up for the Touch of the Younger Kind, prompted oh Spin Magazine God. editor David Itzkoff to comment, this wouldn't be consistent with Bush's image as protector of conservative values. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to comment that this is like, uh, not even, I mean, I guess it is like 20 years ago, but presidential controversies back then were pretty great. <laughs> it, this is just a funny thing to say. Bush, who quit drinking after his 40th birthday, also <laughs> listens to recovering alcoholic George Jones. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Like, what? <laughs> Okay. All right. <laughs> Staying in a legacy here. We're going back a few episodes. Girl You Want by Devo was allegedly inspired by my Sharona. Although, although, oh, so in this article said that Jared Cassell has uh, de- denied this. Because it feels inspired by. It does. It's certainly yeah. not like a riff or anything, but. That kind of sounds like it could be like making fun of my Sharona because the chorus is she's just a girl just a girl you want yeah right but that's the thing I think it might, it might be yeah. um, interesting here's a great one during the recording of the album Thriller Quincy Jones wrote in his biography I told Michael that we needed a black rock and roll tune a black my Sharona and a begging tune for the album Michael came back with beat it I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. That totally makes sense. But fuck yeah. That's kind of badass. Yeah. Uh, pop culture-wise, it was prominently featured Hang in on. the movie Reality Bites. Which, oh, <gasps> yeah. Can turn this up, please? Great movie. Yeah. You won't be sorry. Thank you. Yeah, watching this brought me back. I want to rewatch this. I'll watch anything with Steve's on. Apparently. Uh, according to the band's official website, they were offered this movie and another movie on the same day and had to choose. The other movie was the rape scene in Pulp Fiction. Oh. Wild, huh? Because of Reality Bites, it popped back into the top 100, peaking at 91. This, according to the same bio, was the 10th time in history a number one song reappeared in the top 100. Huh. It is also featured in the 1997 Disney film Rocket Man, the trailer for Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, and is in J.J. Abrams' Super 8. For our longtime SNL fans, which I know there's many, it is prominently featured in a recurring skit called Janet Reno's Dance Party. Oh, I love Janet Reno's Dance Party. I just sent you one that uh, had Rudy Giuliani in it. I like dancing to that song. A different time. He was on SNL a number of times. Yeah, he was, yeah. Okay, that's enough well, I didn't bring up some covers. I guess I could have. Run DMC used an unauthorized sample of the song in their hit, Tricky. You can hear the famous guitar riff behind the famous chorus. Which is that a sample? I never picked that out. I never did either. It's dead on. Uh, and I've listened to that song more than any song we've mentioned on here. Totally. I never really connected it, though. I guess that's just like, it sounds like a lot of the other guitar riffs in Run DMC songs, so I just never I never thought, thought about, about it. it. Uh, huh. 
Apparently, uh, mind blowing. Fager and Aver never thought about it either because they did sue, but they didn't file the lawsuit until 2006. What? Which is 20 years after his tricky was first released. <laughs> and is a, a culturally ubiquitous song. Well, you think, but in an Engadget article I read from the time, from 2006, the writer says, why wait 20 years? Uh, I'm thinking it has something to do with money, but the plaintiffs, Nax frontman Doug Figer and lead guitarist Burton Aver, swear they never heard the Run DMC ripoff until August 2005. This blogger wishes she could say the same about my Sharona. <laughs> <laughs> Sick burn. Uh, and from what I can tell, this uh, case was settled out of court, so I don't have anything more than that. W- one more cover sample, uh, not great song, is uh, a song by Everlast oh. called, called I Got the Neck. Oh, no. Yes, it's just that. It's not good. not good, though. I wondered if it was going to be Everlast rapping or singing the blues. Yeah, yeah, this is bad. This is more uncomfortable than my Shroner lyrics. <laughs> the name of the song is bad, too. I know. Okay. Doesn't look like a lot of people are going back and listening to this one. Yeah, no comments. <laughs> uh, just 1,300 plays. I listened to it twice today. So, <laughs> <laughs> so where are they now? Uh, let's start off with Sharona. Yeah. Sharona is doing better than all of us. Sharona is a very successful real estate agent in Los Angeles. Good job, Sharona. She's she's the real hero of this story. She is a uh, division of Sotheby's, uh, and her real estate firm is called My Sharona Real Estate. Wow. I'll send you her Insta here. Uh, She seems to be doing very well. So, good for her. Wow. That's, That's Sharona. Yeah. Uh, Doug and her did stay friends throughout the years. Mm-hmm. We will uh, we'll get back to their, their relationship here in a second. Uh, let's talk about the boys real quick. I'll give a quick a little recap of, of their history. Uh, back in 1979, Bob Ring, Rob, Rob Ryan, uh, the group's William Morris agent at the time, mm-hmm. said the knack represents a whole generation. They're the band of the 80s. Their demographics are incredible. It's across the board. This music is for all kinds of kids. But unfortunately, that was not true. Uh, They were a flash in the pan. Off the success of Get the Neck, they quickly recorded and released their second album entitled Dot 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 But the Little Girls Understand. (sighs) Yeah. And Capital was like, yeah, cool. Put it out. Great. Well, yeah, I guess. After that first big hit album, they're like, do whatever you want. Sure. Uh, Sharona is on the album cover, once again. The album, uh, I think the, the backlash from the knack like, really like, blew up here. This album had moderate sales. The single Baby Talks Dirty was only in the top 40 for a brief second. They would continue to tour and release a third album, Round Trip, which sold a measly 150 copies, 100,000 copies, sorry. Oh, like, copies. Holy shit. Um, <laughs> even now that'd be and, bad and by the end of 1981 <laughs> the band dissolved and, and went their own way they would re- wow. they would they would reunite of course in 1986 for a handful of shows and they fully re- reunited in 1989 
and they released another record. Uh, seemed that they petered along in the 90s until Reality Bites, where they had a brief uh, little comeback there. Mm-hmm. And this would also be the time that they would first appear on network TV. They appeared on Jay oh. Leno. Well, even 20-some years later, they still sound great live. Yeah. And the lead guitar player is still the coolest one in the band. Yeah. Uh, they would go on to tour and record occasionally throughout the 90s and early 2000s. Band members would come and go, and there were a few rotating alternate band members. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, two- in 2006, Bruce Carey, the drummer, uh, would unfortunately pass away due to cancer. And in 2006 as well, Doug was diagnosed with cancer after doctors found two brain tumors. He would undergo surgery and continue to perform here and there uh, when able. But after battling cancer for four years, he passed away in 2010. Uh, Fittingly, one of his friends who stayed by his side on his last couple days was Sharona. Really? Sharona said a lot of his idols, people that meant so much to him in the music industry, came to pay their respects to him. And it was really beautiful. So Love that. That is nice. Uh, From what I can tell, uh, Burton, however, is... uh, Going strong, working mainly in theater, doing writing for theater. Uh, and hmm. Prescott seems to still be a touring musician playing bass. Why, why was it a hit? Uh, I think it's just fucking catchy. I found, it's very catchy. I found a 1979 Billboard review, uh, and Dick Neusser opens, Here's living proof that the cardinal virtues of rock and roll have survived the excess of the 1970s. The virtues are, of course, simplicity of approach and honesty of spirit. Innocently stuck in adolescence, with that combo and a knack for writing clean melodies and memorable hooks, this quartet can't go wrong. He follows up, the music is sprightly and sophisticated. It makes you want to snap your fingers, shake booties, and tap toes. And the more you listen to it, the more you like it. And I think it's kind of true. He described Mascherano as an energetic raker with a subtle melody, catchy, deliberately awkward, stop-and-go drum and guitar breaks. Its quirky lyrics and suggestive tone will make you ready, willing, and able to hum their frame at the right moment. So right. I think it, it's just a it's, a... it's a big song. If you don't listen to the lyrics, you really... It's just... You just find yourself just, kind of enamored yeah. by it. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. I credit to the label. I think they just... I think the Beatles thing was interesting. I think when you have a song that is loved and hated by so many that it just like... it it's ubiquitous and you can't stay away from it 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 works Uh, i'm sure that just it coming out at that time and not not that many hit songs had come along yet that had kind of combined things that were really great about rock music in the 60s and 70s yeah put it all together and made it sound fresh people probably heard this they're like this is awesome like this is such a cool song like i get it Totally understand. Yeah, I think this probably did feel very fresh mm-hmm. at the time. And it was like it was it was it wasn't too punk and it wasn't too pop and it wasn't too like uh you know major label sappy rock. Like it was all just kind of right and in the middle. It wasn't disco at all. Uh I was actually thinking that it I mean, it is an easy song to dance to and that bass line kinda okay. has some disco vibes. I guess I could see it. Uh, the, the new Rolling Stone album guide claimed that the song was a hit for a good reason. The beat is urgent, the chorus calls out for a drunken shouting along, and the guitar solo is a firecracker flash. Okay. Think yep. it's all true? That's the knack. That's the knack. The best That's part is that 
if you don't want to listen to the creepy lyrics, you can listen to all of those parodies. <laughs> Just listen to oh, so Give many. Me Some Breaks Toyota and you're golden. <laughs> Nothing problematic <laughs> there. That's a wrap on this episode of You Wanted a Hit. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Good luck getting that song out of your head. Please remember to subscribe so you know when the next episode is out. And if you listen on Apple, write a review, but only if it's nice. Follow us on Twitter at YWAHpod and let us know what you think. Or tell us what we missed by sending us an email at YWAHpod at gmail.com. And lastly, share with a friend if you had a good time. This podcast was researched, produced, recorded, and edited by me and Theo Beidler. And our theme music is by Air Doctor. We'll see you next time.